I'm, I'm, I'm just going to move this because I'm aware that I might trip over it and crash on the floor and it's nothing symbolic, I'm just going to put it over <laughs> behind me. Health and safety risk assessment just got done in my head and I thought it's going to happen. So, Good morning. Um, as I was reading through Philippians this week, it really struck me as how amazing a phrase this is, the Lord is near. Isn't that such a life transforming phrase that, that changes everything for us? Um, that our awareness of God's closeness to us is perhaps the thing that encourages us to keep going when things are difficult, that encourages us to move forward when things are good. God's nearness is what pulls us through, which drives us through, which draws us into his presence. You know, one day there will be a time when there will be no more crying and no more sickness and no more tears and we'll all know that the Lord is with us. That's the very definition of heaven, is that God will be with us and we'll be with him. You know, the book of Revelation has got this beautiful picture that the Lord's nearness is so evident that nobody will have to say to their brother or their sister, the Lord be with you because he's there, right with us all the time. Now God is with us now, today, just as much as he will be in glory. But actually, our awareness of that needs to be the thing that inspires us as we move through these days. You see, our nearness of God gives us a sense of safety. Our nearness to God gives us a sense of direction. Our nearness of God gives us a sense of holiness. Our nearness to God causes us to worship. Our nearness to God inspires our discipleship. It's pretty foundational really, isn't it? Um, Being near to God and being aware of our nearness to God. Philippians, I love the book of Philippians because it's a book of basics and when, when sometimes I find myself going astray or not quite experiencing the nearness to God that I should do, I go back to Philippians because Philippians tells us all about the foundations about what it means to live a Christian life. Um, Nicky Gumbel wrote a book, didn't he? Um, a Life Worth Living, which was based on the book of Philippians. It's essentially a series of Bible studies that goes through the book of Philippians. And in Philippians, it encourages us to look at these foundations in order to live even more fruitful lives than we're already living. It's written to the church in Philippi to help them to establish themselves as God's people who persevere. That word persevere comes up time and time again through Philippians. It could almost be um, retitled persevering Philippians. I think Philippi was one of those churches that Paul was quite fond of. Um, not maybe quite as fond as Thessalonica um, and certainly a lot more fond than he was of Corinth you could almost see Paul as he wrote Corinthians couldn't you oh, dear Corinthians um, but Philippi was one of those churches one of those places that had a fondness in his heart before I go any further it's important that we know that God is always near do you know that? You know, I, I said a statement just earlier on that God is just as near today as he will be when we are in glory. Did you pick that up? Now, you might want to theologically attack me on that or, or discuss that with me. But actually the presence of God in this created order is just as much as it will be in the new created order. All that's different is our awareness of that our awareness that God is near, that God is with us. And that's what I'd like to encourage us on this morning, is just looking at that whole idea that God is with us and we need to be aware of that. I'd like to look at three basics, three foundations, which are important to get this right. 
they need to become our second nature. There are three things that help us to be inspired by rather than fearful of the nearness of God who loves us. In Philippi, there was a major failure relationship um, falling out between Yodia and Syntyche. Um, Syntyche and Yodia had contended by my side, Paul says. They were fellow Christians, they were significant Christians, but they've fallen out. And it's in that context that Paul says the Lord is near. It's in the context of walking through the valley of the shadow of death that David says in Psalm 23, I am with you, my rod and my staff, they comfort you. It's in the context of a worldwide commission to go into all the world to preach the gospel, to teach my ways, to teach my commands, to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, the the basics that Paul gives us here are a key resource so that we can know God's presence in the world. And that surely affects the way that we live our lives. There's three things that he looks at. He looks at the way that we relate, the need to nurture, which is the need to nurture healthy relationships that keep, keep us close to Jesus. He looks about the thoughts that we think, so the way we relate, the thoughts that we think, which is nurturing a healthy internal life. And then the people that we respect. They need to look at good role models or fellow Christians that show us how they themselves stay close to Jesus. So let's look at that first one, relationships. Relationships, relationships. Aren't aren't relationships the best things in the world and the most difficult things in the world? In our relationships, you, you know, I've said this probably every time I stand up here, the first thing that God said was not good. What was the first thing that God said was not good? It is not good for man to be alone. See, he created us as social beings. Um, He created us to be in relationship with one another. And so often, when relationships go right, it's the best thing in the world, isn't it? And when relationships don't go right, it's the worst thing in the world. So Paul says, I urge you, Yodia, and I urge you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, um, this might have been another person, a loyal companion, could have been somebody called Syzygus, what a wonderful name, um, to help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Sometimes we hurt each other, don't we? Sometimes people hurt people. Sometimes it's over the most trivial things, but the effects can be devastating. It can waste a huge amount of time. It can waste a huge amount of emotional energy. It can do a lot of damage to God's renown. I can remember um, travelling up to a prison up in the north east of England um, and I, I spent a huge amount of time on the phone preparing for this journey because two chaplains had fallen out and were having a, a huge theological argument with the governor, who wasn't a Christian, about how baptism should be done. You know, should there be a turn and a half of water or should there be a dribble of water should it be done when the person is this size or when the person is this size and the governor really couldn't care less but these two Christians believed that this was essential for them to be able to continue to witness to the gospel in their own particular way um, in that particular prison problem wasn't baptism problem had nothing to do with baptism 
you know, we can have theological arguments and discussions about that. The problem was to do with the relationship between these two, two Christians, that they just didn't like each other. You know, they, they, they saw each other's ministry as being threatening to one another. There was competition going on amongst them as believers. And both me and the, the, um, the other faith advisor that went up, you know, we both went in and we said, okay, so I'm just going to grab one of them and you're going to get the other and we're just going to bang their heads together until they start agreeing with each other. Because it was relationships that were the problem. It wasn't baptism. And so often we can fall out about something and we, we give it a title and we give it a theological explanation, but actually it's just we need to get better at relationships. And not surprisingly, the governor at this particular prison thought that their chaplaincy was a disaster. And what was the effect of that? It was an effect on other prisoners in that establishment who didn't get the care that they needed because the governor didn't put the right amount of money into the chaplaincy. Because why would you? You know, they just fight with each other. And in church, we sometimes can get seen as being judgmental and we can be seen as being hypocritical and we can be seen as being ostracizing or just a clique or, or whatever. And it's not because we are. It's because we don't get that basic thing that Paul urges to Yodia and Syntyche. I urge, with, I urge you, Yodia and Syntyche, agree with each other in the Lord. He later emphasizes in the book of Ephesians, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. See, our relationships with each other are a key part to our awareness of the nearness of God. See, our relationships affect the whole church. They affect the communities around us. And they affect those who wouldn't call themselves believers. How many times have you heard somebody saying, you know, I love God, it's just church that I don't like. You know, or, or I'm quite happy with God, it's just like I don't get the church thing. That's quite a common thing, isn't it? John, the um, Apostle John, he's really clear about this. And he shows us that it's impossible, even within the church, to say we love God, but we don't like his people. You know, it's rather like saying, you know, if we think of Jesus as the head of the church, it's really like saying, well, I love your head, but I can't stand your body. You know, you know how, how would we feel about that? You know, I love your taste, but your body, that's a bit of a disaster. You know, that's not the picture of the bride that we see in the book of Revelation, is it? You know, we're called to be those that love one another. How, do, how does the world know that we are his disciples? By the way that we love one another. You know, the, the whole of the book of 1 John is, or the whole of the letter of 1 John, builds up to that point in 1 John 4. He, he emphasizes that but the whole book is saying you know we need to in our love for God demonstrate that we love one another I urge you Yodia and Sintike see Jesus didn't just come to show us how to worship God better he came to help us relate to each other better that's why he spent three years on an intensive team building program with his disciples showing them how to love one another how to care for each other these were a, a ragbag bunch of people weren't they you know, they were from all backgrounds. They were zealots, which we might call terrorists now. They were money-grabbing, um, which we might see as being inappropriate now. They were rough fishermen. They were ostracized people. And Jesus brought them together and says, if I can bring this lot together, I can bring you together. And for a couple of thousand years now, he's been doing that. Amazingly, he's been bringing us together so that we can love one another. See, relationships are much more important than religion to Jesus. 
relationships much more important than religion. He says to us, he says, if you turn up at the altar and you there want to give your gift and you realize that someone has sinned against you, he says, go back and try and sort it out. And then once you've sorted it out, come back to the altar again. And then you can offer your gift. Because relationships are much more important than religion. It's not to say we never fall out. It's not to say that we won't have difficult relationships. But it's to say that in some ways we must have a better way of dealing with it than the world around us. Now I'm talking about fallouts here. I'm talking about sort of difficulties in relationships. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about violence. I'm not talking about destructive behaviours. I'm talking about people in the church or us, me and you, falling out with each other about things that sometimes matter and sometimes don't. See, when we fall out, we should deal with it better. We can deal with it better. We can have a desire to resolve, not just to be right. We can start with a commitment not to gossip. Rather, this thing of gossip, I, I was going to say something else, this thing of gossip, it just gets me over and over again because it's, it's one of those sins that we underestimate all the time. You know, we talk about liking a good gossip, don't we? You say it on the, um, on the soaps all the time, a, a bit of gossip, you know, it's, everybody loves a bit of juicy gossip. You know, in Romans chapter 1, it's listed in the same level as immorality, um, as debauchery, as wayward lifestyles that we would look down and we would think, wow, that's not the way that God wants us to live. And gossip is right in there amongst it. When we fall out, the first thing that we want to do is we want to rally support from those around us. And so we go and we kind of gossip about the person that we've fallen out with. We've got a better way of dealing with it than that. You see, we start also with the knowledge that God is working in them as well as in us. We shouldn't be, I'm right, you're wrong. We shouldn't be spreading gossip and rumours around about the person we've fallen out with. We shouldn't even be saying, and this is the difficulty that, you know, I've been a Christian now for 30 or so years. You know, that's so easy for me to say, this is what the Lord is saying to me. And therefore, what the Lord is saying to you is wrong. So often, we take that thing on. So we either gossip about it, or we take that on. This is what the Lord says to me. Have you ever heard that? The Lord has told me, such and such, or so and so. We've got better ways of dealing with it than that. The Lord is also speaking to the person that you've got the difficulty with. And he's given us a whole bunch of tools that we can use. And the first tool that I'd like to talk about is the tool of forgiveness. Now, I'm not going to go into a huge amount about forgiveness. Partly because Steve preached an amazing sermon on it a couple of months ago about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. Forgiveness isn't saying it's all right what you did. Forgiveness is choosing to accept that you're going to allow yourself to move forward from that previous place where the relationship had been smashed. Saying it's, you're not saying it's alright, but you're saying, I choose to forgive and to walk in that path of forgiveness. See, when we've got that tool at our disposal, and it's not a natural tool, I often say this in prison, um, that forgiveness is not a natural tool It's a supernatural tool. And we've got it at our disposal. The tool of forgiveness. 
not to say what you did was alright because it possibly wasn't but to choose to say I'll forgive you so that I can move forward and maybe in time the other person will move forward as well the second thing that we've got um, is that we've got the knowledge that God wants to bless them as well as he wants to bless us you know, for Yodia and Sintiki, I don't know what their falling out was about, but I'm, bet- I'm betting that Yodia didn't particularly want to bless Sintiki. You know, maybe bless her with a brick, um, but didn't really want to bless Sintiki. That's what Yodia thought. And Sintiki probably thought God doesn't want to bless Yodia. But actually, God wanted to bless them both, didn't he? And he wanted to bless the world more so through Yodia and Sintiki. He'd done that previously. They'd been fellow contenders with Christ with Paul. Our nearness to God is at stake here. Our awareness of a nearness to God is at stake here. When we fall out with each other, so often we find ourselves in a place where we feel that God is distant, that God's not with us anymore. Our third tool, our first tool is forgiveness. Our second tool is blessing the other person. Our third tool is understanding that God makes us all differently. And sometimes we see things differently. You know, Paul and Barnabas fell out quite big time, didn't they? And eventually they had to get to a point where they said, okay, you go and do your stuff and I'll go and do my stuff. So they fell out, but still, they were both children of God, brothers of God, and brothers of each other, moving forward, contending with the gospel together. See, we can understand that someone else can see something differently. And then in Matthew chapter 18, we've also got a method. When someone sins against you, it says in Matthew chapter 18, you know, there's a method there where we can say, somebody has sinned against me and I've gone and seen them and they don't think they sinned against me. So I went and saw them with somebody else and we talked about it together. I think nowadays we call that mediation, don't we? You know, there's no title in, in scripture that says mediation. And then you kind of escalate and what have you. But there's a method there for resolving disputes amongst believers. So we don't call in ultimately. You know, we don't need to get to that stage where the governor is involved in resolving a fallout amongst us. See, relationships in the church are what the world see outside to demonstrate that we are really the church. They'll know that they're my believers, my followers, my disciples, because they love one another. Our relationships with each other are crucial to being aware of the relationship, our relationship with God, our nearness to God. I'm sure that all of you, if I look round, at some point you've fallen out with somebody, not necessarily in the church, it might have been in the church, um, but you'll have fallen out with somebody at some point. And don't you just kind of struggle in your spirit when that happens? You know, you feel bad, you feel a little bit less than you felt. And when our relationships with each other are, are bad, often our relationship with God suffers so we need to also focus on our relationship with God. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. See, our nearness to God is obviously key in developing our relationship with Him. Paul, having urged Yodia and Syntyche to sort it out, he refocuses us on praising God. God as, and I, I love those, um, those words that we sang this morning, God as waymaker, as miracle worker, as promise keeper, as light in the darkness. 
See, Paul is somebody who's been through some genuinely difficult times, but he still finds the space and the commitment to praise God. You know, he's in prison when he's writing this, but he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He's been through the mill. He's been, th- he's been shipwrecked. He's been bitten by snakes. He's been rioted. He's been earthquaked. He's been through the mill and back again. He's been abandoned. He's been misunderstood. He's been misrepresented. And rather than focus on that, he chooses to focus on the recognition that God is good, that I'm going to rejoice in the Lord whatever happens. God's goodness never changes. Whatever we're going through, we an awareness of the nearness of God is partly dependent upon this knowledge that God's goodness never changes. We used to often do this thing in church didn't we we'd say God is good and then somebody would say back all the time and then the person would say all the time and God is good we've stopped doing that nowadays because it got a bit of a kind of thing shall we do it again one more time for old times sake God is good God is good God is good all the time and it's such an important thing to get in there that whatever is going on whether you're being bitten by snakes or whether you're being shipwrecked or earthquaked or going through the mill with illness, or bereaved, or fearful, or desperate. God is good all the time. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And what's the next line straight after that? He then says, the Lord is near. For me, in this passage, that is the, the shining light that comes out of here. The Lord is near. Whatever the always entails, whatever suffering the always might entail, the Lord is near. He's just as near now as he will be when we stand before him in glory. The Lord is near. And so I rejoice in the Lord always. There was a song that was sung by Pink, I think it was about a year ago. And she rang the chorus line, but what about us? What about us? You remember the song? And it kind of really railed against God for all the suffering that was in the world, as if he'd forgotten us somehow. He's not forgotten us. He's not left us to get on with it. He's not left us in the midst of the suffering. He's with us right here in the middle of the suffering. God never ignores our suffering. He takes our suffering deadly serious. But sometimes he enables us to face it head on. The response of faith is Job's response. He says, Though the Lord slay me, yet I will hope in him. Hope that's inspired and committed to the presence of God that the Lord is near. Hope that's sustained by his peace and the peace of God that passes all understanding. Peace that knows that God is in control. See, God's got our back covered. God knows who we are. He's not ignoring us. He didn't ignore David in the cave of Adullam. He didn't ignore Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He's not ignoring you when you're in hospital and you can't feel the presence of God. The Lord is near. He's the way maker. He's the miracle worker. He's the provider. He's the light in the darkness. The Lord is near. He's near indeed. He's got our backs. You know, I pay money to insurance companies to have my back. So that if I drive down the road and I smash into a 15th century cottage and it knocks down and it falls all around my car and I'm looking and thinking, ah, that must have been 18 million pounds in there. I don't need to worry about it because I've got insurance. 
See, we've got God that's got more than just insurance. We've got God who's got all of our backs because we're his kids. And he loves his kids. And he wants his kids to know that whatever befalls us, he is with us. In Psalm 23, Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The key thing that we, the key tool perhaps that we have to develop this relationship is prayer. You know, as we develop our relationship with God, we do so through prayer. It says, it says in the passage, it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, submit your request to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So often we focus on that, do not be anxious about anything, and we think, I suffer from anxiety. I suffer from depression. How can I not be anxious? And we focus on that a little bit, don't we? Rather than moving on to the next bit, where it says, but in everything, through prayer and petition, submit your request to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm guessing as I look round that the vast majority of you have seen the truth of that promise, haven't we? At some point in our lives, some point in our Christian lives, we may have seen that it's been a struggle sometimes, but I'm guessing that all of us at some point in our Christian lives have seen the truth of that. I think I pretty much see the truth of it every day when I'm anxious and then I pray and I find my anxiety just goes somewhere different. Now that's not medically anxious. It's just an anxiety that we get. And sometimes we find that when we pray, often we find that when we pray and when we submit our request to God, the peace of God that passes all understanding, guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. See, God is big enough to deal with us. In times of pain, in times of grief, in times of stress, loneliness, abandonment, anger, fear, He's the God who builds up hope in us. Yes, though the Lord may slay me, yet I will hope in him. I could stop here, you know, um, because I think if we've got a relationship with God, I'm not going to, by the way, so just in case you're getting your hopes up. Um, <laughs> if we've got a relationship with God right, and a relationship with each other right, I think that we would find our awareness of the nearness of God increase tenfold. If we've got our relationship with each other and our relationship with God just a little bit better, we would find that our awareness is much more like we can experience in eternity. But the reason I'm not going to stop is because Paul doesn't stop. Um, he carries on and he talks about two other things which I'm going to go through reasonably quickly. The first thing, and I don't, I don't want to leave this one out, is the danger of our unseen thoughts. You see, all of us, many of us, have an unseen world that goes on inside us all the time, don't, don't we? You know, we have things that come out of our hearts that we're really not happy about. We all have an unseen world, and the way that we nurture this makes us who we are. Jesus said, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth and enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? He gets a bit kind of graphic with this, really, doesn't he? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, so what we speak, this is what defiles. 
For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness. There's the gossip thing again. Slander. These are what defile a person. You see, the seen world, the outside world, is obvious. Food, drink, perhaps our happy faces on a Sunday, a chat in the supermarket. But only you and me and God knows what goes on inside my heart. But that's where our heart's desires come from. Rick Warren says, tell me your habits and I will tell you who you are. But you see, our habits come from what we think. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, such think about such things. How much time do we think do we spend in a week thinking about such things? You know, how much of our time is devoured by either switching off through watching telly or going on social media or Facebook or, or whatever it is and we think about whatever is delivered our way and we don't necessarily think about whatever is praiseworthy or lovely or admirable. Now I could go through each of these one by one using the kind of Greek interpretation. Um, I'm not going to do that. What I am going to do is I'm going to look at just all of them very quickly. How often do we think about truth? What is truth? Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? Truth is standing in front of him. <laughs> Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? And the person who says, I am the way and the truth and the life is standing right in front of him. Whatever is true, think about these, th- these things. Whatever is true is simply whatever is Jesus. How often in our lives do we think about what is Jesus? As we're walking along the street and we see difficulties and pains, people sitting on the street, homeless. What is truth? What is noble? You know, I think of nobility as being something to do with royalty. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The the majesty of our God. We don't sing majesty, worship his majesty anymore, do we? But thinking unto Jesus be glory, honour and praise. Majesty, kingdom, authority. The nobility of God. About what is right. This is one of my favourite quotes. Martin Luther said, Martin Luther King said, it's always the right time to do the right thing. Always. It's always the right time to do the right thing. How often do I think about that? Or do I think what will make me feel better? Or will I think what in the long term seems to be working itself out and I've got worries about what might happen in the future so I do maybe the slightly wrong thing because I've got worries about the future rather than just doing the right thing today whatever is praiseworthy whatever is admirable whatever is noble whatever is right the pure the pure you know so many of us are haunted by impure thoughts whatever is right, whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is godly effectively is what it's looking there whatever is admirable what do you admire, what do you look up to what do you think that's really good how do we think about these things these are all things in our thought lives that are intended to nurture our nearness with God what is lovely um, I, I was struck, I got a, a text from one of my nephews recently um, and he's just started going out with somebody and he wanted to say and the thing that he came back with and he said her name and he said she's lovely and it just struck me that that newness of a relationship with somebody that 
first time that you go out with your girlfriend for the very first time is lovely. How often do we spend thinking about the things that are lovely? You know, Paul said, uh, not Paul, um, John said through Jesus, or Jesus said through John, you know, I hold this against you to the church of, you've forgotten your first love. Um, Laodicea, yes, yeah. <laughs> I knew that it was a spitting out of your mouth words. <laughs> I hold this against you, that you've forgotten your first love. Whatever is lovely, think about these things. It really struck me that, you know, when we, when we meet our partner or our girlfriend or our boyfriend or whatever, you know, she's lovely. Whatever is lovely, think about these things. Whatever is excellent above the normal, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is admirable, if anything is praiseworthy, how often in our days do we spend thinking about these things? See, having the discipline to see this through the filter of these things, I think, raises our awareness of the presence of God. See, it's difficult to feel near to God when we're having impure thoughts, or when we're having destructive thoughts, or when we're having thoughts that are thrown on us by the norms of the world. But when we think on these things, we find that nearness to God is much more natural. Just a really practical thing. During this week, perhaps we could take those eight things. There are eight things there. There are seven days in the coming up week. And maybe during our Bible study time, or our quiet time, or our private time with God, it's in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, I think it is. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Maybe during this week, we could focus each, we could all focus on one of those things and think the Lord is near. Just a really practical thing. You see, I think as we start to develop habits, as Rick Warren says, then we start to change as people. And I know that my thought life has got to change if I want to become the person that God wants me to be. I know that. And so we've got to develop, or I've got to develop, and I'm guessing that many of us here are in the same boat, these habits that change our thought life. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to know what God's good and perfect and pleasing will is. And then finally, he says, keep on doing the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I urge you to imitate me. Paul says, look at me. And if you see something good in me, do that. How many of us look to other people and think, I don't want to be like them. Um, or we look at other people and we think, oh, I'd really like to be like them. But we're kind of worried about that whole hero worship thing. And so we don't do anything and we just keep ourselves to ourselves and keep walking our, our own walk of discipleship. Discipleship was never meant to be walked just you and me and God. Or, or me and God. It was always meant to be you and me and God. See, discipleship is, is meant to be a journey that we do together. And Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says, look to me, look to my face. Now, don't, he wasn't saying, put me up on a pedestal, because when we put people up on pedestals, we always knock them off the pedestals, don't we? You know, always. It always happens. You put somebody up on a pedestal, and then they let you down. Paul wasn't saying that. He was saying, look to me as I seek to follow Christ, warts and all. This is maybe something that we can think about, whether it's we can look to somebody else to walk this walk of discipleship with. God doesn't want us to be lonely disciples. 
He wants us to have someone that we can walk with. Now, somebody that maybe you can phone up from time to time and just say, look, I'm really struggling, can we pray together? Or maybe somebody that you can read a Bible verse together with. You know, as community, this is who we can be. People that walk the walk with each other. Now, Paul is saying, look to me. I'm just suggesting maybe as church that we could look to one another. We could start to look to, who can I walk this walk with to continue? Because I'm not supposed to be on my own. And I don't know, I've found that sometimes just when I'm walking along, shoulder to shoulder, with another respected Christian brother, that I feel closer to God. You know, I can remember walking with somebody fairly recently around Whitlingham Lake. And by the time I got to the end of that walk around Whitlingham Lake, I knew that the Lord was with me. I knew that I was much closer to God than I'd been when I'd got out of the car. Anybody else ever had that experience? When we just walk with each other. And we do so in the presence of the God of the Lord. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying we need one another. If you don't have anybody that you're looking to just now, perhaps this could be an encouragement to us. Who am I looking to to help me walk this walk? In conclusion, Paul moves in this passage from an encouragement to two quarrelling believers to sort their difficulties out through the transformation of our thought life to a call to imitate those who follow Christ. See, in all of these things, the Lord is near. He's he's always near. He never moves away. He's never on hold. But sometimes I've been guilty, and perhaps we've been guilty, of living as if God is somewhere else, as if he's perhaps distant. Perhaps the, the glory of the future times, in some ways, knowing God will make things different. But God wants us to know him today just as much as we can know him then. He wants us to live lives that are better. But instinctively we think about the true and the noble and the pure and the excellent and the praiseworthy and the lovely and the admirable and the right. Lives where we're drawn in our discipleship together with fellow Christians who walk the walk and talk the talk. And lives where our relationships are better. Relationships with one another and relationships with God. Sad thing is, I think sometimes our relationships are fraught. I think sometimes our thought life is less than pure. And I think sometimes we try to do discipleship on our own. It's not how it's meant to be. I don't think that's how Paul encourages us to be in Philippians. He wants us to sort out our disagreements. He wants us to bury the hatchet. And that means in the ground, not in each other's heads. He wants us to bury the hatchet. He wants us to sort out those relationships. He wants our thought lives to become habitually better. And he wants us to walk together. By this you'll know that all men, but these men are my disciples. By this you will know that these people are my disciples. That they love one another. The reward Paul suggests, and it's right at the end of the passage in Philippians chapter one, verse nine, chapter 4, verse 9. He talks earlier on about the peace of God that passes all understanding. The reward is not the peace of God that passes all understanding. The reward comes at the end of that little passage. Right at the very end, he doesn't talk about the peace of God. Has anybody still got the Bible open on this? What does he talk about, Andy? What did... <laughs> still flicking through it. What's, what's the last verse? Verse 9. Can we just throw it up on the screen fairly quickly? He doesn't talk about the peace of God. And I, I emphasize this so that you're not just thinking it's me saying this. 
What does he talk about? He talks about the God of peace being with you. See, the reward is not the peace of God. It's not the feeling that, oh, we're in God's presence now. The reward is the God of peace being with us. The presence of God. The nearness of God. The Lord is near. Paul suggests that this, the God of peace being with us, is what we need. Anybody tell me what the name that we'll be thinking about soon that reflects God being with us is? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And the transformation that Emmanuel makes in our life is staggering. Lord God, we thank you um, that you have promised that you are with us, that there's nowhere that we can go from your presence, that if we flee up to the heights that you're there, if we go to 